Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited for the next four weeks we're going to be doing a sermon series called The Road Through the Cross where we're going to look at a few of the major mile markers that the Gospels all record about Jesus on his way ultimately to die on the cross and rise again that we'll celebrate on Easter. And we're going to be asking a couple questions as we journey along at these stops along Jesus' way to the cross. We're going to ask what do these events recorded in the Gospels have to say to us about Jesus, and what do they reveal about him and what he came to do? And so my hope is over these next few weeks as we explore these, these moments along the way that we get a little bit more definition, a little more depth of understanding into this gospel of Jesus. How many of you know, you've been following Jesus long enough, that the key to following Jesus is seeing him and understanding what he's done and who he is better and better? And that's my hope through this, that for some of you, it won't be review, it will be renew, and we'll go deeper into your love and gratefulness for Jesus. But today, our first, step, our first stop along the journey is in a town called Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, where we hear the story of Jesus being anointed for burial by a woman who pours out a year's worth of perfume, a year's wages worth of perfume on Jesus, causing the whole room to gasp and the disciples to say, why this waste? Why would you do such a thing? Why this waste? And then Jesus subsequently not rebuking her, but rebuking them, saying this is no waste at all. And what we see in this story is a conflict of values. You see Jesus and this woman calling one thing worship while the rest call it wasteful and calling one thing valuable while the, west, while the rest scratch their heads saying, why would you just ch chuck that away? It's a conflict in values. Now, for some of us, it might seem strange in the Bible to see such disparity between what is valuable and what's not between these two groups of people in the room. But we all know the adage, don't we? One man's trash is another man's... Yeah, we know that to be true, and we've experienced that in our own lives. Where are my thrift store people at? All right. Where are my yard sailors at? No shame. No shame in your game. It's all the same thing. Where are my, where, where are my deal shoppers at? You like winners. Where are the winners people? Why do we love that? We love, like, I am wearing a shirt that I bought at the Frenchies in Shediac for five bucks. It's an Eddie Bauer shirt. Five bucks. I don't know if there's more a New Brunswick thing to say than I bought this shirt at the Frenchies in Shediac. <laughs> That's about as New Brunswick as it gets. But you might not have the same style of clothes as me, and you might not think that that's a great deal, and you think I should have put it back. But we all love to find a bargain, don't we? We all love finding something we needed in a place that you had to look a little bit. Maybe finding something that others missed. I remember when I found it, I was like, I can't believe nobody's bought this. And then, of course, paying a price far less than it's actually worth. We love that, don't we? This is what makes such a great thing. I was actually doing some Google searching to find the all-time greatest thrift store finds. Here's the top three that I could find. Coming in at third place, a person found a green jacket, a master's green jacket, at a Goodwill in Ontario, bought it for five bucks, 
the estimated value of the green jacket is $140,000. Now, some of you golf fans are like, worth it, right? You're going down to Augusta, going to pull up to the, to the champion's dinner with your green jacket on. Maybe this doesn't matter some of you who don't care about golf, but ladies, how about this? There was a lady in the UK who found one of Princess Diana's gowns, unbeknownst to her. She paid $250 for this beautiful dress that was actually worn by Diana, and it was, it was sold at auction for $200,000. Talk about a, a, a treasure amongst trash. But the greatest one I found of all time, unanimously, there's been some amazing works of art that have been found in thrift stores. And the most expensive one ever happened in Southern California, a woman named Terry Horton. She's a retired truck driver. She went into a Southern California uh, thrift store and for five bucks found a cool abstract painting that she thought was pretty. Turns out to be a Jackson Pollock original. And it was purchased for five dollars. She's had offers of over $9 million for this. She kept it, by the way. She didn't care. This girl's, this girl's amazing. Like, just, it's in the back of her truck, just driving with a Jackson Pollock. Like, right? Valued as high as $50 million. And we all think, man, how come I wasn't walking by that heap of artwork at Frenchie's and it was me that found this great treasure amongst the trash? Well, today I want to use that analogy, this analogy of finding treasure amidst trash and this idea of waste and worship. And I want to talk to you about one treasure that beats all of these, a treasure so marvelous that you could spend your life savings on him and still feel like you got a deal. It's good news, this treasure of a lifetime is available to you. In our journey to the cross, we are stopping in Bethany today. And we find the story of this woman in Matthew chapter 26. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 26. And we're doing two at once. Can you handle it today, King's Church? Come on, Halifax, get your Bible open. Turn to Luke chapter 7. It's the same story, and we're going to need both to fill in what's really going on here. You ready to study the Bible today? All right, I'm fired up about the Bible. I just saw it with my own eyes for the last 10 days, and I got stuff to say. So there's, let's get you caught up, though. What's happening? So Jesus comes to Bethany, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. He had served the region in Israel, the northern region. I was there last week. There's all these towns surrounding the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus spent three years ministering and teaching, performing miracles and saying the most incredible things that have ever been said to this day. And he spent three years doing it, and then it tells us in Luke, I love the language Luke uses, then Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. There came a moment where he said, the time is now, I'm done teaching and preaching, and I'm now turning to accomplish my ultimate mission, and it's going to happen in the city of Jerusalem. And we find as he goes to Jerusalem, all of the Gospels tell a variation of this same story where Jesus is in this home in a, in a town called Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. It would have been like a bedroom community in Jerusalem. So like Quispamsis to the St. John area, Bethany is to Jerusalem. Or Enfield to Halifax. Or maybe Cornwall to UPEI people, you Charlottetown people. I don't know that St. Stephen has a bedroom community, but you get my, you get my meaning. All the Gospels tell us this story of this woman. Now let's check it out. Let's just take a, look, a deeper look 
at what Matthew says. It tells us, it gives us the setting. Jesus is in Bethany. He stops there. And in fact, this could be his home base all the way to when he's betrayed and then goes to the cross. He was living in Bethany just outside the city. He would travel in and minister, but ultimately this was his home base. And this one occurrence, he shows up to the house of Simon the leper, and we find out a woman comes to him and does this act of pouring this perfume all over Jesus, and there's this kind of scandalous reaction to why she's doing this. So let's just get the setting. So we don't really know much about Simon the leper other than he once was a leper, Obviously, he's not a leper right now. These were all Jews, and you don't go to a leper's house party. You don't. So he'd been healed somehow. We aren't told when. We don't know if it was Jesus or if he just got better. We could presumably say that because he was a leper, that maybe Jesus did heal him. And in fact, Luke gives us another detail about Simon. Simon was also a Pharisee. So obviously, there's this warmth growing up, to, growing in Simon to Jesus, so much so that he throws a party and invites Jesus into his home, all the disciples are there, and there are other religious leaders there as well. So Simon was well off, an influential man who formerly had leprosy. We are also told that there's this woman and this scandalous moment that unfolds. And we see this reaction happen. On the one hand, you have the disciples saying, why this waste? Why are you throwing a Jackson Pollock painting into the bin at Frenchie's? What are you doing? And yet you have Jesus, on the other hand, affirming her. Look what Jesus says. Let's just get this. Jesus says, why are you bothering this woman? What she's done here is a beautiful thing. She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you. Do not rebuke her. In fact, this is a great use of that perfume, according to Jesus. So what we're seeing here is this conflict of values. Is this wasteful or is this worship? Is this treasure or is it trash? And I want to look at three things today to help us see maybe in Jesus what this woman was seeing and maybe grasp on to why the Gospels include this story and what they want us to see about who Jesus is and what he ultimately came to do. Now to get a little more detail, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 7. Are you with me still? Luke gives a little more detail, which is consistent with his gospel. You know, all four gospels are different. They all do different things. They're all told by different people, all about Jesus. But Luke is the detail guy. Luke just went in there. He was a skeptic, and he just wanted all the details. The details matter. And so Luke isn't, isn't as poetic, but he is detailed. And Luke tells us this. Behold, a woman of the city, that's important. You should underline that, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So we get a little bit more detail here. We're, we're told about this woman, and we're told what she does. She comes in and falls at his feet and pours out this expensive perfume. Matthew calls it very expensive perfume. Uh, Luke gives us the detail about this alabaster flask of ointment. Mark tells us that it's pure nard worth 300 denarii, which is a year's wages. Imagine your whole annual salary in a bottle of perfume. 
how you would treasure that. $400, $800, $1,200, right? Imagine that. I, I, I was given, uh, last week I was gifted a, a bottle of Tom Ford cologne. I would never spend the money on that. It was such a nice gift. I smell amazing, even though I don't sound that good. But I'll, I know I'll never buy that again. So I am like watching that thing real close. Every squirt's like two bucks, right? So, but this was very expensive perfume. And it would have been shocking not only because she poured the whole thing out on Jesus that there goes a whole year's wages, but the more shocking and scandalous thing about it is who she was, who was doing this. Luke tells us she's a woman of the city, a sinner. This is a polite way of telling us that she is a prostitute. She was a woman of the night. She was a call girl. This was her profession. And so you have added layers of scandal here. One, because of how she acquired that and what she does with that perfume. And two, she is by no means in the financial position to be tossing around that kind of dough. And so people are scratching their heads saying, why this wild waste of perfume? What is this woman of the city doing to Jesus? Why is she doing it? To everybody in that room, this was a waste. But to her and to Jesus, this made perfect sense. Why? Well, the first thing I want to suggest to you today as to what was motivating her is that she recognized the innate beauty and glory and value and worth of Jesus. There was one precious thing in that room that outweighed them all and rendered them all trash. And in her mind, it wasn't Simon's beautiful home. It wasn't the decorations he had up or maybe the gold he had stashed. It wasn't even that valuable, very expensive perfume. She had seen that this Jesus is not just some fancy teacher. He's not just some celebrity from the Galilee area. He's not just some guy that's doing works of wonders. This is the Messiah. This is God's anointed one. Quite literally, this is God in a body in the room. And so she begins to have this revelation of the grandeur and wonder and glory and beauty and majesty of Jesus. She had a revelation that this Jesus is God right here in front of me. This is the Almighty in the flesh, uncreated, all-powerful, everlasting, omnipotent, omniscient. He is the one, the ancient of days, uncreated, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He's right here. If one believes that Jesus is God, let me ask you this. What is the value of very expensive perfume in light of the one who made your ability to smell in the first place? Get this. She is indicating to us in her response that this is actually, she's the only one in the room acting appropriately. Everybody else sees the value of the perfume. She sees the value of the creator. And she's blown away by him. 
if Jesus really is God, this type of reaction is completely appropriate, isn't it? What is the materialistic thing in relationship to the uncreative one? What is temporary value in relationship to the one who is supremely and eternally valuable? It's nothing. And this, her reaction, is consistent with the claims of the Bible. First this. Make no mistake about it, Jesus himself claimed to be God. Not just someone that came to point to God. Every other world religion and leader, they all came as someone pointing to God. But Jesus himself claimed to be God. And if Jesus really is God, that should warrant a certain reaction from us. I love, I love the words of Paul trying to help the Colossians understand, try to frame in a bigger view of who Jesus is. He tells us that this Jesus, like, get the caricatures out of your mind and get this low view of Jesus, your homeboy, the airbrushed blonde buddy-buddy. That's not who he is. He is the image of the invisible God, like the stamp, the, 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 the actual visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This Jesus, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Let that sink in. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Wow. The very molecules inside that jar of perfume are being held together by him. Let that roll around your head for a minute. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What's that mean? First. There is no other. For in him... All the what? The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There is no part of Jesus that is not fully God. So let's just zoom out for a minute and look again at what she was seeing. She was seeing one who was fully God and reacting appropriately. Consistent to the reactions of the Bible. You know, if you, if you flip through your Bible today and you looked at anybody who had like an eye-open revelation where they saw the glory of God. Every single one of them, it's consistent. They're humbled into a pile. Like Isaiah 6, the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up. What, what did he do next? He said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips among unclean people. You think about Daniel when the angel of the Lord visited him. He said, I fell down as though dead. You think of Moses in his boldness when he said, show me your glory, God. And God said, you can't see my glory. Are you crazy? I'll show you where I just was. Embrace yourself. You think about Peter in the boat when he realizes Jesus is the Messiah. And he, what's his reaction? He's like, cool, I got the Messiah in my boat. That's not his reaction. His reaction was, I can't be near you. We are not the same. You are other. You are holy. There is no one like you. I am not like you. You think of the disciples. You think of John the Apostle in Revelation 1 when he sees the risen Christ. It didn't say he had this great reunion. You think about John the one he loved. You think about it's been years since he'd seen Christ. He would have had this moment of Jesus. It wasn't. He said, I fell down as though dead. This is the glory of God on display. The humility that happens when you see the glory of Jesus. You know what else happens when you see the glory of God? It causes involuntary heaps of praise. 
You see this in the Bible. Revelation shows it best. I love this. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 5, you get this picture of the throne room. And it tells us this, Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the one. Worthy is the Lamb. Think about angelic beings in all their splendor. Flipping it around and saying, only he is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory. Do you know what's happening here? Have you ever, been, have you ever noticed how mastery and glory is gravitational? In that, like, like, like for instance, uh, maybe you're part of a big family. You've got a bunch of sisters. You're in, and, and there's always the argument, who's going to cook Easter dinner? Well, you know who cooks Easter dinner? You know who everyone wants to cook Easter dinner? The best cook. Right? Because glory and mastery determines that we say, you deserve to cook the turkey. Does that make sense? Let me, okay, dude, sports. I, I played basketball this year uh, on my old man men's league team with a guy who played professional basketball, was cut from the Celtics. Like, one of these things is not like the other, right? And all of us on the team, we were like, you deserve to never sub, and you deserve to shoot every shot. And we were great with that. <laughs> Why? Because glory, greatness, pulls in greatness. Does that make sense? So, so when you see this picture, what's happening? All the thrones of the universe and all the crowns of the universe being laid down at the feet of the Lamb. And it's saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be all blessing and all honor and all glory and all power and all wealth and all wisdom and all notoriety forever and ever. Do you, do you see what's happening? When you see his glory, there's this involuntary, you, you, you deserve it all. And real glory makes a mockery of all other glory. You ever notice how, like, if you're in a room and the lights are a certain level of bright and then someone flips a brighter light on, you stop noticing the other lights? It's the same with glory. When you see the glory of Jesus, everything else just... It's like that old song, the things of earth grow strangely dim... In the light of his glory and grace, this woman had seen his glory. Look, church, if, if Jesus is who he says he is, then what's crazy is not how she was acting. What's crazy is how everybody else was acting. Flippant and commonplace. And how often do we do that? Oh, yeah, I'm going to go worship Jesus. No, Jesus God in the flesh, image of the invisible God. When we see Jesus and we get a glimpse of his glory, it causes a worship response that in the eyes of an unseeing world looks wasteful. I hope my values and actions at times looks wasteful to people who don't see Jesus for who he is. Why do I serve him? Why do I devote my life to him? Why do I give my time to him? Why do you show up at church every week? Why do we get up in the morning and waste our time on him? Have you seen him? Why do I come to church and raise my hands and sing as a grown man crying like a small girl? 
Why have you seen him? Why do I fight and try and do my best to obey him? Why have you seen him? Have you seen him? If Jesus is God, it would be crazy not to offer him everything. When you see him, it moves you. It causes you to change your mentality. (laughs) Excuse me. There becomes a change in values and actions, she'd seen him. Let me, let me just give you a quick pro tip. Those of you, all of us here, most of us here are following Jesus. If you're not, I hope you are by the end of the day. But here's a pro tip. Your vision of God and your vision of Jesus is going to set the parameters for your whole life. I have noticed that every time I have struggled with my faith, struggled to be obedient, struggled to trust, struggled to abide It's all rooted in having a low view of who Jesus is. And every time I've walked in victory, it's been preceded by being anchored in a view of Jesus Christ high and exalted. You know what the best prayer you could pray for yourself or somebody else is? Some of you are struggling. We want to pray for your your kids that you're praying for now. You're however many days into it. You know what you could pray? The best thing you could pray is, help me see Jesus rightly. God, help me see Jesus rightly. Because when that happens, everything gets aligned properly. Let me ask you the question, how is your view of Jesus today? Is it high or is it low? Does he render the treasures of earth trash? Can I remind you today that the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God? That the riches of this world are poverty to him? That the beauty of this world is featureless in comparison to his beauty. That the weakness of this, of this, of his weakness is more powerful than the most powerful armies in all of nature combined. To him be all glory. To him be all power. To him be all strength. To him be all dominion. To him be all honor and wealth and glory and blessing and praise forever and ever. And the creatures and the elders and the angels and God's people said. She'd seen him. But let's drive a little bit deeper. I'll be done soon. This isn't just a response. This isn't just an appropriate response of revelation. Like when you see Jesus, it should cause you to go low. It should cause you to push in your treasure on a greater treasure. But there is a level of response going on here that is more personal than just God's glory. Notice that we aren't just told about her pouring out the perfume, but we're told that She let her hair down, and she's there like in a humble mess on the floor, weeping on his feet and wiping his feet with her long hair. And now that would have been absolutely, utterly scandalous in that culture. And I'll tell you, I can tell you from an eyewitness account, they're still very reserved on what women do And how they operate, even in Israel to this day. But it was very inappropriate for a woman to take her hair down outside of the bedroom. This was something reserved only for the husband to see. And yet she comes in and she just lets her hair down in front of him. And she's not just pouring out her perfume. She's pouring out her tears. She's making a proper scene. 
Why? It's not just because she saw the glory in the image of God, glory in Jesus, but it's because she'd had an experience with him, and Jesus gives us insight. Luke, Luke goes on and tells us why she's doing this. Jesus answers, they're, they're asking why is she doing this, what's going on here? And Jesus says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And Jesus goes into a parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, a woman of the city, her sins, which are many, are, say it with me, forgiven. And he says, this is why she's doing this, for she's loving me much. Jesus is saying, he who is forgiven little loves little. What's his point? He's saying, this is the response of someone who knows they've been greatly forgiven. She did not just see his glory, she'd experienced his grace. Here is the king of the universe accepting her. She'd experienced the grace and goodness of Jesus. Why is she acting this way? She's tasted his mercy and grace. Her response is not merely in the relationship to the glory of the Son of God. Her response is the gratitude one gives when your debt has been paid. An infinite, eternal debt. Her sins, which are Many. Brent's sins, which are many, your sins, which are many, have been forgiven. He who's been forgiven much loves much. So again, the question would be, who's wasting? And who's has the wrong response? It might be said that she's the only one that has the right response. When we consider who she is, it helps us get a little bit more insight into what's going on here. I told you earlier, she's a, she's a woman of the city. She's a prostitute. Jesus said her sins are many. But there's an act of repentance going on here that's easy to miss. Now, on the one hand, you see the tears. You see the reaction that she's having. But what she's doing gives us insight into the fact that she's leaving a whole life and accepting a new one in Jesus. This alabaster vial of perfume, let's talk about that for a second. This would have been something that she wore around her neck, and the, the vial would have been uh, like a marble rock case, never really made to be opened. Don't picture like my cologne where you squirt it like this. It's just a rock that would hang around her neck, and the rock sweated. It was thin, and it would, it would emit a tiny little bit of the perfume so that she would just be an aroma wherever she goes. Now, in first century Israel especially, the biggest challenge they had is water, and with that, hygiene. People were lucky to bath one time per week. So in the 
area of profession that she had, it wasn't just an advantage to be physically or visually beautiful, but perhaps an even more appealing thing to potential customers isn't how she looked, but how she smelled. And so this alabaster vial of perfume, in a very real sense, wasn't just her life savings from the past, but this was the thing that she was leaning on to save her life into the future. This was how she made money. This was how she provided for herself. But we find she comes in and she, she pours it out on Jesus. Now, for her to pour that out on Jesus would mean that she would have had to break it open. She would have actually had to break it open and just dump the whole thing out. And so what you get when you piece that all together is a woman who had seen Jesus for who he is, heard his invitation to come to him, and decided, I am leaving that old way of life, and I am breaking away from it, and I'm giving myself fully to him because I believe that he can give me a better quality of life than that. That's repentance. It's not just the feeling of being forgiven. It's the action of changing directions and saying, I'm yours. Picture this moment now with that in mind, why Jesus was so pleased with that. What an aroma of someone who knows they've been forgiven, pouring themselves out on Jesus in gratitude. I was reminded that this week uh, when we were in Israel, there was about 10 of us from King's Church, and there's about another 40 from around the states. And so one night they asked Pastor Adam to share his testimony and uh, tell a little bit about Celebrate Recovery and, and restoration ministries and that. And he gave his story. And he said something, though, that really struck me and I thought went really well with what we're talking about here. He said, you know, there's nothing quite like meeting every week with a bunch of people who know they're broken and know they've been forgiven. There's nothing more powerful or beautiful than that humble gratitude that says, Jesus, you would save a wretch like me. Talk about a fragrant aroma to the Father. This is why Jesus was not rebuking her. This is why it wasn't a waste in his mind. She'd experienced the grace of Jesus. This was no waste. This was repentance. This was worship. She knows she's been forgiven and she knows she's been given a new life that ultimately would be paid for by Jesus' blood. I believe she understood the true wastefulness going on in the room. You see, there is, there is waste happening in this story. But it's not in Jesus. The waste that's happening, or sorry, it's not on Jesus. It's in Jesus. The waste that is happening, the scandal of something being poured out so much more valuable isn't the perfume on Jesus, it's Jesus on humanity. Look what, look what Jesus says. Aware of this. They're saying, why this waste? Why would you pour out that expensive perfume? And Jesus rebukes them. Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on me, what did she do? She did it to prepare me for what? I've come to die for you. She's anointing me for burial. What does anointing mean? It means to be set apart. 
It needs to be designated. He's saying, she's anointing me for burial. This is my purpose on why I've come. And she got it. She understood there is a lavish expenditure of resource happening in this room. And it's not my perfume. It's the sun. That something, someone is being poured out on us that's going to not just be a fragrance of worship, but it's going to be a whole new life for all who believe. And you start to think about this. This becomes a prophetic picture of the gospel. Think about that alabaster jar of perfume for a minute. It's sweat, didn't it? It emits a fragrance. I visited Gethsemane this week. We'll talk about it in a few weeks. We're told that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he was praying and contending to the Father, and he was so crushed with stress and the weight that he sweat like drops of blood. We're told that she broke the vial. We're also told that Jesus, when he was betrayed, would go and he would be flogged and stripped down and spat upon and ultimately, quite literally, have his arms nailed to a Roman cross and raised up where he would slowly asphyxiate. His body, quite literally, broken for us while his blood poured out on this lost humanity. It's a picture of the gospel. Do you see it? So where's the waste? There is a waste in the room, but it's not this woman. It's the scandalous love of God poured out on all of us in Christ Jesus. Talk about treasure for trash. But because of his great love for us, while we were yet, yeah, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. I think she saw and knew the unimaginable love of Jesus. When you see the love and glory and grace of Jesus, it renders every other treasure in this world as irrelevant. Why this waste? It's not a waste to this forgiven woman. This is the deal of a lifetime. This is better than a thousand Jackson Pollock paintings in a goodwill. What is perfume? What are a year's wages? What is job security? What is dignity in comparison to the love and grace and mercy of God poured out on undeserving sinners. It's nothing. Paul said it like this in his letter to the Philippians. He's talked about, like, I've learned the secret of contentment. I've been rich, I've been poor. It kind of doesn't really matter to me. And then in chapter 3 he says, whatever gain I've had in this life, I count it as loss, trash for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. What is suffering for the one who suffered for me? 
For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I may gain Christ. He is the treasure of heaven. Paul says, what can I do but give all for the one who gave me all? What can I do but reach fully for the one who reached fully for me? Take hold of that or he who which took hold of me. What can I do but lay my life down for the one who laid his life down for me? What can I do but love fully the one who loved me fully? What can I do but treasure the one who would, you know, not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but would forsake his divine privileges and die on a cross? Like it says in Hebrews 12, like for the joy set before him, he scorned the cross, scor endured the cross, scorning his shame. What joy? You are so valuable to him. Here's the crazy twist on all this. We could be, if we, if we took the scripture and we believe Jesus is who he says he is, one would be left with the, you know, like there's, such, there's an analogy today, there's an there's a attitude today that says you're so valuable. Well, you know what? When you start to see the weight of your sin and the reality of your own brokenness, you're problematic too. And the scandal is that Jesus would call you his treasure. That he in the cosmic, this sounds bad, but go with it, the cosmic Frenchies of the universe <laughs> would not pass over you. but would see you in the rubble of your mistakes and the rubble of your inadequacies and the rubble of your insecurities and the rubble of all the regrets and the shameful things that you've done or been done to you and says, there's a treasure right there. One I will pay my life for. Let me say this in closing. Loud for your spirit, your soul to hear. Maybe close your eyes and listen with your heart. Hear me in your broken soul. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one more valuable and no one more glorious and no one more beautiful, and no one more important, and no one more powerful. He alone is worthy of it all. Jesus is so glorious and wonderful that he deserves our full worship and allegiance and adoration and attention, whether he ever noticed you or not. But he did notice you. He's not just great, he's good. He's not just Lord of the universe, he loves you. And there is no life, hear this in your soul, there is no life like the life that comes from the grace of Jesus. You search the world and the expanse of the universe for that which is most life-giving and most fulfilling and most able to save and most able to redeem and restore, and you will inevitably find Jesus. There is no love like the love of Jesus. Let me remind you today.
he is worth your love and he is worth your life and he is worth your affection and he is worth your allegiance and he is worth your time and he is worth your suffering because you are worth that to him. What other response would be appropriate to a God who would waste himself on you like that? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we uh, acknowledge our own blindness and our own ability and proclivity to be distracted and to confuse trash and treasure all the time. And so we simply pray today, King Jesus, help us see you rightly. Help us see your glory. You are greater than we think you are. You're more worthy than we know. And Lord, help us experience your goodness and your presence. And help us walk in your love. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. Now, Lord, would we be like this woman and would we waste ourselves on you? Lord, bring us past, like, just trying to squeeze out a little dab for you and help us just dump the whole offering of our lives on you. We thank you, Jesus, for loving us so much that you would die in our place. And we pray this in your matchless name. And all God's people said, amen.